My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts. It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future. Responses to COVID-19. Well, I'm pleased to be joined today by BMF Alami, the MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, a Conservative MP. Bim and I have known each other for some time. We knew each other before you were an MP, didn't we, Bim? Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. So my first question to you is, What's it been like being a Conservative MP this week? Well, not ideal. This week, we've had the sort of Don Cummings issue continue to rumble on, though at time of recording, it appears to be dying down a little bit. The difficulty when you're a Conservative MP is that, you know, you are in your constituency, the face of the government. Obviously, people know that the prime minister is the number one person in the government, and then you've got the cabinet and then sort of MPs, but you're the representative in your constituency. And so when people have an issue with the government, that means they've got an issue with you. (laughs) And so it is difficult when these things happen, because what you've got to balance up is the often understandable desire to speak one's mind on a range of different things but also recognising that you are the face of the government in your constituency. And actually, politics is a team sport. It's not an individual one. It's a team sport. You know, you either hang together or or hang separately. And so it's important that you do maintain some form of strong corporate sense of what the party's decision on a particular issue is. And that can be difficult sometimes. When it's sort of a national issue, that affects sort of when people, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds of emails locally, that can be very, very tricky. And, you know, having been through Brexit, I thought I'd been through storms and I had, but this is a another storm of a different variety. And I guess that it must be dismaying that you spend so much time building up relationships across your constituency, winning trust from people. And I've been reading your local newspapers about how you've been responding to the pandemic and the messages you've been giving people, which have been very kind of empathic. So you're trying to be a politician that's in touch and that's responsive and that's building relationships. And then something completely out of your control comes along and drives a bit of a coach and horses through those relationships you've built up. I mean, that's the tough end of being a politician, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. And The thing you've always got to remember, though, I think, as a politician, and look, I was elected first in 2017, so just coming up to three years being an MP. The thing you've got to remember is that people are smarter than one might think they are, insofar as they can distinguish between your local 
work, your local persona, the local stuff you do with charities, the local campaigning you do, the times when you ask a question in the house about a local issue, et cetera, and then how you approach a national thing. And people can distinguish that. You know, last night I was going through some of the emails that have come in and, you know, people will often write things like, thanks so much for your help with X, but now I'm going to talk about the Dominic Cummings thing. (laughs) So it's not that they don't appreciate that. They just regard that as a separate category. And I just think always what you've got to do in politics, and especially, you know, if you become senior minister or whatever, is you have to be able to do both parts of your job and make sure people can see when you're doing one and when you're doing the other, because ultimately people are voting for a local MP. And it's a lot easier, especially if your party, say, nationally might be having some problems when it comes to a general election. And that will happen. Though we won the last general election, you know, a day will come when we're not going to win it. And when that day comes, it's a lot easier for people to keep their faith in you if they know you've been doing that local stuff right. So you've just got to continue doing it, really. Well, I mean, I know from my own political past that there are times when you are put in a position where you kind of have to argue that water can run uphill, and that's just part of the job. It's never easy to do. So enough of the Dom Cummings affair. We're hoping this podcast will have long-lasting value, and who knows, there might come a point when this isn't something that people are obsessed by. So, Bim, let me ask you the question that we've asked everybody on this podcast. How do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? I like to think of this in two aspects. I think you've got the international, the global, the interconnected, and then you've got the domestic. So if I talk about the global first, I think it is clear to me that a trend is continuing that will now accelerate of what you might call deglobalization. And what I mean by that is the sort of seamlessly interconnected world, whether it be through physical travel, data, capital flows, etc. Though will in most parts continue, I think there will be some form of fallback for that, in particular around the area of trade. And I think the United States actions vis-a-vis China are illustrating that. I also think that the difficulty you're seeing, obviously, with Britain and the European Union, obviously, we don't know exactly how that's going to play out. But I think it's analytically, it's clear that Britain and the European Union will be less close than they were in the past in terms of trade. I think that's clear. So I think that you are going to see that. I am worried from an international perspective. If you actually look at the history of the late 20s and early 30s, one of the reasons why we ended up with the depression that we had is because you had a political and economic crisis internationally at the same time. And in effect, there was no global hegemon who could hold up the international liberal, what was then a liberal economic order. There was no global hegemon that could do that. United States didn't want to do it. They were in one of their sort of fairly frequent isolationist modes. And Britain couldn't or felt it couldn't do it because our power had reduced by that point. So actually, you ended up with a situation where there wasn't anybody to sort of anchor that liberal economic order. There wasn't anybody who had the political power, a military power to anchor that liberal economic order. And I think that those two things are completely intertwined. And when I see today, I'm not saying today we're going to end up in World War II. What I'm saying is one of the reasons why I am a bit worried about the international situation is it is very, very messy. 
there is no anchor for the world economic order in the same way as we might have said even 2007, 2008. So I think that that is one way in which the world is changing, will continue to change. So obviously what you say chimes with what other people on this podcast have said. Kevin Rudd, for example, I think he was quoting Ian Bremner. He talked about the concept of the G0, that you know it's not G7 leaders or G20 leaders. The problem is there is no global leadership and the challenges that that creates. Having said which, you know, it's interesting that this week the European Union has kind of had its Hamilton moment in the sense that it has agreed to major debt shared by the countries across the European Union and indeed to Europe-wide taxes. I mean, it's a relatively small redistribution in comparison to what takes place within nation states. But nevertheless, it's a major step for countries like Germany to agree to. So it seems that different countries are going in different directions here. And that takes me to my question, which is, as I understand it, one of the issues in Whitehall right now is between those who say, look, the consequence of this crisis is we need to onshore, we need to question global supply chains, bring business back into Britain. That's a way of boosting our resilience versus the kind of Britain in the world agenda, which was part of the Brexit story, which is that we need to lead the European Union so that we can have much richer relationships with other countries around the world. How do you see this falling in relation to UK policy, Bim? It's a very interesting question. I've done quite a lot of thinking about this recently because I'm doing some work. I've put together what I call the Unlock Britain Commission, thinking of economic actions we need to take to sort of get ourselves, rebuild the economy after this crisis has abated. And I would love it if the way how we deal with our problems is to sort of give massive tax breaks for everybody to come back to Britain, international manufacturing, come back to Britain, provide British jobs for British workers, to coin a phrase, and everything will be right. I'm afraid I don't believe that is true. We cannot think that the way for Britain to succeed in the modern world is to do things that we aren't very good at doing, because no country is good at everything. And that's, by the way, part of what trading is about, is you do certain things you're very good at, and you buy things that you're less good at from somewhere else. And, you know, there is no real sustained future for Britain for us saying, we're just not going to trade. We're going to keep things at home and erect protectionist walls around ourselves, which is what you would have to do if you're not as productive as somebody else. You would have to erect walls around yourself to stop the more productive good or service coming in. Now, I just don't think that's a sustainable world. And without banging on about the 1930s, you know, it doesn't always end up that well economically, let alone politically. However, resilience is important. And there are a couple of areas where I do think you can sort of square this circle. One is on farming and local food supply. And I think that there is definitely going to be a need and a move to promote more domestic food production. But the second one is, if you're thinking of physical goods and you're thinking of trade, if you think of the debate you outline, the only way this is going to work for a country like Britain, Brexit is going to work, is if Britain can have good, productive economic and political relationships with as wide a variety of actors in the world as possible. And this is why I'm, I think we need to be very careful about the China-America situation, recognizing the problems that China has, recognizing their democratic, not even just a deficit, a complete lack of democracy, recognizing the way they 
behave with IP and various other things. Britain has to make sure that we can trade with the United States, China, European Union, and other emerging markets as they grow in Africa and other parts of Asia. It is critical for us to do that. There's a reason why in Britain we've always been in favor of free trade. It's because it benefits this country. It has for decades, indeed centuries. I think it'd be a great mistake to turn our back on that. One of the things, again, going back to my conversation with Kevin Rudd, is that he was quite pessimistic, but he felt that both China and America would be weakened by this pandemic. China, because of its role in the origins of it, which is still, of course, murky and where things could get worse in relation to what it is we find out. And America, because this crisis has once again demonstrated some of the kind of fault lines in American society and the problems with its leadership. Kevin's question was whether or not those countries in the world which are broadly liberal democratic, respecters of the rule of law, inclined to recognising the importance of international institutions to resolve international problems, could come together to occupy a kind of third space to avoid a world which was basically dominated by two highly problematic powers. Now, I noticed this week that a new date has been set for COP26 next year. Do you hope as a Conservative MP that Britain can go out there and offer leadership, maybe punching above its weight offering leadership? It's got this opportunity of COP26. Or do you think that's just unrealistic? Because after all, Britain's reputation has taken a bit of a hammering in the last couple of months because we're, I think, second in the global league table for deaths from this pandemic. So what are your aspirations for Britain to be able to provide international leadership? So you're right that many people over the last couple of years, have looked at Britain and sort of said, what's going on? The biggest part of that is Brexit, actually. I think that what we'll find with the pandemic is that the countries that have, in inverted commas, worse results in terms of health outcomes, I think will be quite explicable to a bunch of structural factors to do with the nature of the population, how densely populated they are, the health of the population more generally, and there'll be some countries that do better in that, some countries that do worse. I don't think at this point sort of everybody's looking at Britain because of two months of data. What I do think in relation to COP26 is we have to. If Britain cannot take the lead in COP26, not just in terms of having officials and politicians fly all over the world to hammer out a deal or whatever, but to take an intellectual strategic lead, an ideas lead, be a thought leader in what the new phase of climate diplomacy looks like. So, for example, does it just mean over the next few years we just do rounds and rounds of trying to get countries to agree non-binding commitments to lower their emissions. Now, that's one thing you can do. Alternatively, we could think of it completely differently and think maybe it's a time for some form of global carbon trading system. You know, maybe this is the time when we can do that. Maybe it's the time for some other way of reframing the climate political architecture, if that isn't too bizarre a phrase, to lead on this issue. Because if we don't do that, then what sort of role do we perceive ourselves playing? Militarily, we're not going to be big like China, Russia, the United States. Militarily, we're not in that space at all. In economic terms, we're large, but we are still dwarfed by some of the bigger players. We have a great record on issues like climate, international development, diplomacy more generally. We've got to use it. 
Well, that's very heartening to hear. And, and of course, you know, there are new opportunities for COP26 in relation to what we've had to do to our economy in the last few months. And that opens up new ways of thinking, it seems to me. But anyway, that's your first point. Ben. what was your second point when it came to what you think should change as a consequence of the pandemic? Really, it's about government intervention in the economy. So, I mean, there are details around it. But ultimately, as a conservative, so look, I'm 34, I grew up very much with the sense, and this wasn't, by the way, just the Thatcher major government, but also Blair's government, of an economic system that was settled. That, you know, we knew what the government should do, we knew what the private sector should do. And over the last 10 years, the financial crisis being the biggest thing, but not just that, I think that that view has shifted. My view, increasingly, is that the divide is not really between public and private, shouldn't be between public and private in terms of an organization or an institution. The divide should be between organizations of purpose, which support people, and organizations which don't. And you can find them in both the public and private sector in both senses. What does that look like politically in a sort of domestic sense? I've thought a lot about this issue of the government taking stakes in companies. I mean, something came out earlier on last week that the Treasury is considering, and they call it Project Birch, I think, where you know the Treasury is considering maybe taking stakes in major strategic sectors of the economy, maybe airlines or, or various other things. But actually, I'm thinking about this more broadly. We are going to have a corporate sector, especially SMEs, that is hugely indebted after this crisis. You know, the C-bills, the coronavirus uh, loans, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but they're colossal, very cheap debt, and that's what the government rightly did. But that money is going to have to be paid back. And there are really three types of company. You've got the first type, which probably shouldn't have taken the C-bills. They weren't viable before the crisis. They're not going to be viable afterwards. And they, unfortunately, are going to go bust and they're going to default on their debt. There's not a lot you're going to do about that. There's a second group which took the C-bills as more of a precaution. They're actually doing fine. They were very profitable before the crisis. They're going to be profitable afterwards. They'll pay back their debt, no problem. And the cheap debt would have done its job. But you've got a third type of business, which is a business that was profitable before the crisis. They take on this extra debt to tide them through the difficult months. And they're still profitable afterwards, but their debt is so big that they can't grow. They can't grow their company. And if you're looking for a fast recovery, as I know that the government will be, indeed all of us will be, that's problematic because so much of your growth is driven by small, medium-sized businesses that if they've got too much debt, these won't be able to grow and recover. So what we need to do is think inventively of how can the government help not to pick winners and to decide, I'm going to save this business or that business. How can the government help sponsor recapitalization of the small, medium-sized sector? And there are various ways of doing that. But if we can do that, if we can recapitalize that sector, give them equity rather than debt, or rather convert some of that debt into equity, and that equity could end up being given to their employees, for example. That's something I would support. Or give to young people because young people have been, frankly, sort of screwed over by this crisis in so many different ways, then I think that that sort of government action, though we wouldn't have thought it typical for a conservative to think so, say, 10, 15 years ago, is the sort of radical yet practical answer to the problems of our time. 
This is a big shift. Do you think it's a shift that the Conservative Party is ready to make? And how much resistance will there be? Because after all, there are still many MPs in your party who remain absolutely true to that Thatcherite view that interfering in the market is almost always counterproductive. Yes, and it's important to say that interference in a well-functioning market for not a good economic reason is often counterproductive. But what I always say to people is, let's actually look at what Thatcher and her ministers did. What they did was they looked at the problems of their time and they constructed a coherent set of responses to those problems. It would have been crazy for them in the late 70s to say, well, look, you know, we haven't done this sort of thing in a very, very long time, so we're not going to do it because it's not really conservatism. Well, that's just nonsense. They looked at what the situation was. They then created a policy response, coherent policy and ideological response to that. And that was then. That was 40 plus years ago. We're now in a different time. And if we cannot, as you say, construct a new type of market economy, that works for the problems of our time. As I say, I happen to think that one of the biggest ones, though not the only one, is going to be huge amounts of debt for the corporate sector. And that's something economically you need to fix. If you just say, well, we're just going to leave it. Well, if we'd left it in this crisis, then lots of companies would have gone bust. And somebody may say, well, this was a big crisis. Well, yes. But therefore, you accept the scenario that at certain times you can do things that are different from what you've done before. So really, it's a question of degree and manner. So once we accept that, I think, yeah, we have to create a new type of market economy. Because to be frank, if we do not, and we pretend that everything can go back to, in inverted commas, normal afterwards, that is not going to be economically sensible or indeed politically sensible. So it seems to me that what we've seen so far from Boris Johnson is two different strategies and in a sense, moving between the two. So part of the time, it feels like there's a genuine attempt to be a kind of one nation project. There's talk of leveling up and the role of the red wall, blue wall MPs who are going to bring the concerns of working class northern parts of the country into the Conservative Party. But then at other times, particularly around the Brexit issue, it feels like there is a return to the mobilisation of dividing lines. And we did see this a bit with the Cummings affair, that most of his most vociferous defenders were people who were also absolutely at the front line in relation to the Brexit issue. Do you feel that the Conservative leadership needs to make its mind up about whether or not it's going to try to run a one-nation inclusive project where everything you've said, Bim, aligns with that kind of idea, and in so doing, let go of some of the kinds of advantages that came from dividing the country up into Brexit believers and Ramoners and finally stepping away from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the language of Brexit on both sides of the debate, so to speak, has been deeply destructive for our body politic. The faster that everybody can get away from that, the better. I am dismayed when I see, and I'm thinking of now constituents contacting me, constituents which on one side will say they'll copy in, you know, the sort of pro-Europe group or whatever, and they'll say, you know, Dominic Cummings lied then, he's lying now. And then you've got people who also email me in support of Dominic Cummings saying, the only reason why the media elite doesn't like him is because he delivered Brexit. 
And I just find it deeply dismaying. I happen to think that over time it will just reduce, the salience of that issue will reduce. But to answer your question sort of very directly, I think that we've got a choice. If you are trying to really build in and bed in radical reforms, like I know the prime minister wants to do in terms of leveling up, in terms of running a one nation project, if you really want to bed those things in, you have to take people with you who are on the sort of other side of that divide. So, you know, that's really your choice, because ultimately, if you can't do that, then even if you do win, you end up winning in a very narrow way. And it can often be be theoric victory in terms of really trying to deliver the changes that you want to see. And I'll just finish with this. Michael Gove, I think, is famous for reading people like Gramsci. And, you know, Michael, I know well, and he, he does a huge amount of reading and huge amount of thinking. And one thing that Gramsci and others talked about is the sense that it's not just, you know, the government or whoever's sort of at the top of government that matters. It's the institutions. It's people in the little platoons. It's all the quangos. It's civil servants. It's charity leaders. It's people who run small businesses. You have to be able as a government to really deliver big things. You have to be able to take enough of those people with you on that journey. That's what the Blair government did. That's what the Thatcher government did. In fact, to some degree, it's what the Wilson government did in the late 60s. And if you can do that, the reforms you want to make for the country can be more profound and more long-lasting. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation. I can't help but be amused that a half-hour conversation with a up-and-coming Conservative MP has featured the need to tackle climate change, the opportunities offered by state intervention, and the works of an Italian Marxist. So, uh, <laughs> Ben, final question, which we've been asking everybody. I know you've been working hard. I've spoken to other MPs, Liz Kendall and Caroline Lucas, on this podcast, so I know you've had a lot of constituency work as well. But have you, like other people, had any time during lockdown to develop any kind of new institutions enthusiasms or habits or interests? Have you been baking bread out in the garden, learning Mandarin or anything like that? Not clever enough to learn Mandarin. Can't bake bread because I'm terrible at cooking. But what I have done is, so we live in a, just outside a village in Hertfordshire, just outside my constituency, and we've got a row of trees in the garden and there were some gaps. And so what I did was I went and bought 10 holly trees I put in the gap. I bought them with a sort of root ball around them. They were about a meter high. I planted them, which is a lot harder work than people think if you haven't done that. It's really hard work, especially when the ground's quite hard. Planted all of them and have been watering them carefully. At the beginning, I overwatered them, but now I think I'm getting it right. It's probably about once every five, six days. And my friends find this absolutely hilarious that I have now taken to gardening. You know, lockdown does strange things to many people, including me. I can't help feeling that your cultivation of trees is somehow symbolic of your wider political approach. Bimafalami, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. 
Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.